Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn. Today, we have a very special episode for you as we prepare to honor those who fought and died for our country with the upcoming Memorial Day celebrations. We know that many Americans think of this holiday as the kickoff to summer, but it is so much more than picnics, giant sales, and a day off work. Memorial Day is our opportunity as Americans to honor those who served our country and paid the ultimate sacrifice by giving their lives. And before we get right into our episode, Diane and I want to say thank you very much to all of the listeners who have submitted photographs for the slideshow and information about um, those that they wanted to honor over Memorial Day. So we will have that slideshow. Of course, this episode is airing on Thursday before Memorial Day, but the slideshow itself will be available on our social media pages and our website on Memorial Day itself. And it will include all of the photographs and information that all of you listeners have submitted to us. And we are extremely grateful. And I cannot wait for people to see it because we've had Um, submissions from um, all the way back to the Civil War, but we've also had World War II submissions. Um, We have vets from um, the Korean and the Vietnam War. So you guys have been wonderful about wanting to honor your loved ones in this way. So I'm super excited to have this slideshow for you. So thank you very, very much. Memorial Day is celebrated on the last Monday in May. It was originally called Decoration Day and began as a way to honor soldiers who died in the American Civil War. Families of the soldiers would take time on this day to decorate the graves of those who died in battle. Memorial Day, as Decoration Day gradually came to be known, originally honored only those who lost while fighting in the Civil War. But during World War I, the United States found itself embroiled in yet another major conflict, and the holiday evolved to commemorate American military personnel who died in all wars, including World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which established Memorial Day as the last Monday in May in order to create a three-day weekend for federal employees. The change went into effect in 1971. The same law also declared Memorial Day a federal holiday. On May 31, 1999, President Bill Clinton called all Americans to join in a national moment of remembrance. As we contemplate the comforts and blessing of our lives and the well-being of our nation, I ask you to pause just for a moment to remember those who gave their lives to protect the values that give meaning to our lives. The National Moment of Remembrance Program was established to remind Americans of the sacrifices made by members of the armed forces as well as others who have died as a result of service to this nation. Americans around the world should pause and remember these heroes in a symbolic act of unity. We thought it fitting that for our first ever Memorial Day episode, we should focus on a tomb in our national cemetery, Arlington National Cemetery. Arlington National Cemetery is located in Arlington, Virginia. The property was originally owned by George Washington Park Custis, grandson of Martha Washington and step-grandson of George Washington. It was passed down to his daughter, Mary Anna Randolph Custis, who married General Robert E. Lee on June 30th, 1831. 
In May of 1861, the Union Army took control of Arlington Estate after Mrs. Lee abandoned it to stay with her sister in Fairfax County, Virginia. At this point, Robert E. Lee had resigned from the Army and was made a general of the Confederate Army. The Union Army used the property as a camp headquarters. In 1863, the government established Freedmen's Village on a portion of the estate as a way to assist slaves transitioning to freedom. The village provided housing, education, training, and medical care. As the number of Civil War casualties was outpacing other local Washington, D.C.-based cemeteries, the property became a burial location. The first military burial took place on May 13, 1864, for Private William Christman. On June 15, the War Department officially set aside approximately 200 acres of the property to use as a cemetery. By the end of the war, thousands of service members and former slaves were buried here. Ultimately, the Lee family was compensated for the property and the land remained with the War Department. The Arlington Cemetery brochure states that Arlington National Cemetery has evolved from a place of necessity to a national shrine to those who have honorably served our nation during times of war, including every military conflict in American history and during times of peace. The cemetery is the final resting place for more than 400,000 active duty service members, veterans, and their families. Service to country is the common thread that binds all who are honored and remembered there. One of the best loved and most visited tombs in Arlington is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the tomb. According to tombguard.com, sacrifice, suffering, and grief are synonymous with war, a nation of families, friends, and citizens mourning the loss of their loved ones need closure in order to start their grieving process. They need a place that represents this loss and celebrates the service and sacrifice that protect the liberties of free nations. Special days were dedicated for paying tribute to those who served since the earliest days of U.S. history. Yet, at the beginning of the 20th century, there remained no singular place for Americans to visit in order to pay tribute to those who gave all. Considering the amount of sacrifices made throughout U.S. history, it seemed natural when the U.S. Congress enacted legislation following World War I to dedicate such a place. We have no national expression of any sort since the war ended that would give the people an opportunity to show their appreciation of the services over there of the young manhood of the nation. And it seems to me it would be a very fine thing for Congress to make some provision for a ceremony that would give the people of the country an opportunity to do that. General of the Armies, John Pershing. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was established in 1921. The unknown soldier laid to rest on the East Plaza of the Memorial Amphitheater represent all missing and unknown service members who served and made the ultimate sacrifice. They not only gave their lives, but also their identities to protect these freedoms. The tomb is the final resting place of the World War I unknown soldier and three crypts contain the remains of unknown soldiers representing World War II, the Korean War, with an empty crypt dedicated to honoring our nation's missing. The tomb of the unknown soldier is guarded at all times. 
And today we are so pleased to introduce you to a member of the Society of the Honor Guard. We have with us today, Ruth Robinson. And Ruth is going to let us know how she became a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, and first we'll um, have her talk a little bit about her military background and we'll kind of go from there. So Ruth, welcome. We are super, super pleased that you were willing to join us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to join both of you on the podcast and also tell a little bit about the story of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, because that's part of our lifelong uh, affiliation and goal is to tell the story of the unknowns because they have a story too. So Ruth, when did you first join the military and what branch have you served in and all the good facts about that first? Yep. So I joined uh, in October of 2011. I uh, went to Fort Litterwood, Missouri for basic and AIT for a military police soldier. Uh, after I completed that in March of 2012, I then was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, first with the 59th Military Police Company, and then with the 984th Military Police Company. I deployed to Afghanistan uh, in 2013 with the 984th Military Police Company, and that's kind of where I first started thinking about where I wanted to go next in the army. And um, I actually had the opportunity to meet an, an old tomb guard that happened to be in Afghanistan at the same time. And he kind of solidified that that was, that's where I wanted to go. Um, I had been there before. I actually went with my, my brother and I think it was 2009 when I was in college, I came up to visit him because he was stationed at Quantico. And we went there. And at the time, my boyfriend, my now husband, was stationed out in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So I was kind of trying to find my way back out east. And, you know, that's where I found the 289th Military Police Company, which was stationed at Fort Myers. So that was kind of my way into the old guard. I had to put in a packet uh, and get accepted because they try and keep it, you know, it's the face of the army. So they need good soldiers right. to represent the army. And I was accepted and I got there in February of 2015. I served for a couple of months with the military police company there. And it was, it was well known that my goal um, when I moved there was to go down to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to try and become a tomb guard. So in June of 2015, I was able to go down to the tomb and begin my tryouts or the training process. And I was down there until I left active service in uh, January of 18. Wow. I have goosebumps just thinking about like the, mm -hmm. the whole tryout process to try and get there and be that guard. So that's very cool. Congratulations, by the way, yeah. on doing that. Um, and thank you. Why don't you go ahead and start by telling us about the society that uh, of the honor guard and what your mission is as that society and what you guys do and maybe a little more history we we touched on obviously on the history of the tomb but if there's additional facts that i did not include in that history we would love to hear more about that absolutely uh the society so i'm the education education committee chairwoman for the society of the honor guard tomb of the unknown soldier and it's a non-profit organization and its sole purpose really is to committed to preserving the the history of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, um, honoring, remembering the service and the sacrifice of the unknown, but also, you know, the tomb guards themselves, they, they all play a role in what goes on um, down there. And so it's to honor the unknown soldiers, it's to protect and uphold 
the tomb of the unknown soldier and prevent any desecration or disrespect but also as a society a lot of it is education so as the education committee chairwoman i work with a few others that are involved in the society to have those um, education presentations so we're actually getting requests one to five if not sometimes more a day from different organizations to do a presentation about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, as Tomb Guards, we can talk for hours about it. Usually we have <laughs> anywhere between 20 to 45 minutes, kind of depending on uh, what the what the time limit set is. But we just cover the, the general history of, of why we have a Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, because Great Britain and France were the first two countries to basically have that idea. And we followed suit later on. It was um, a representative Hamilton R. Fish is the one who started the legislation for us to have a, an unknown soldier and then went through the selection process. So the and um, then interred there on the Memorial Plaza. And then as we you know went throughout the wars, we had other ones, World War II, Korea, and then Vietnam. And then Vietnam was disinterred um, for identification. So it's still a dedicated area memorial for families, service members to come and mourn because at the time the Vietnam unknown was interred, the wall in DC had not been created. So after all the wars that we had, the Vietnam soldiers had nowhere to go and mourn. So this was their place. And it still serves as that, um, but thankfully they also have the wall along with all the other memorials there in Washington, DC. Now with that current memorial or with the, the one that's left, and I don't know, do we ha often have unknown soldiers anymore? I mean, we have much better technology for keeping track of everybody when they're out and even when they're fighting and stuff. So I, and I don't know that we hear about them as often anymore. So in terms of modern day, the chances of having an actual unknown are very pretty much slim to numb. I can't confirm that we would never have one. But when you join the military, they take um, you know, your blood, dental x-rays, and that's for strictly identification purposes. And if it happens today, we have a lot more family members alive. Where if you're looking back to World War I, World War II, the troop um, accountability is not there as it was today. It's a lot more spread out, not as good communication, maybe dog tags, all those you know, dental x-rays weren't very good. Um, so we're still actually relatively um, on a consistent basis identifying unknowns from our previous wars, um, and that's through either dental or family DNA because there's a, a program that's out in Hawaii through our central identification laboratory where families can submit their DNA so that whenever they either disinter an unknown or find other remains that are either in the Philippines or Tarawa, anywhere we fought, um, they have the ability to use DNA to identify as many as we can so that they can have a name and their identity back. So when you do your presentations and you talk a little bit about the history, why don't you tell us some of your favorite um, top points in that history and the things that you like to talk about most when you're the one presenting? <laughs> it's a uh... Something that's actually started to stand out to me recently, my husband was stationed in Germany in 2019, and I was able to go out and see him for about a month. And we um, went to the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery, and that's actually where the three unknown candidates that were not selected for the World War I unknown are interred side by side. Um, and my husband and I, when we went there, it was on actual Memorial Day in 2019, 
And we were pretty much the only ones at the cemetery minus the superintendent, and maybe one or two other visitors. But the ability to go there and pay your respects personally to something that you have put so much time, effort, and energy into, and then passing that on to your other soldiers and being able to share it, uh, that experience, because we have plenty of tomb guards um, that have never been able to go over there. Hopefully with the Centennial, we have a few more that are able to go over and experience that. But just being able to have that experience on Memorial Day, one, you know, a huge reason that you, you know, what we do, all the honoring the service and sacrifice of them, um, that's probably been one of my favorite things to share in terms of a personal experience. Now, we know that the, the tomb is guarded 24-7. Um, how does that work? I, I know I've seen like the changing of the guard and all the things that go in, but when was it decided that it should be guarded all the time around the clock? And then kind of, yeah, how does that process work for each set of guards that comes in and out? Yep. So in 1921, when the tomb was established, there wasn't really a permanent guard there. It wasn't until later legislation came in that they because of either trespassing, there were some civilian guards and stuff. They're like, hey, this needs to be guarded. This needs to be something where people come and understand and remember. And um, there's further legislation put on that they, a guard would be stationed there. Um, it didn't, it, it evolved over time into what we do today. It wasn't always what you see out there with the guard change. Um, so it was midnight to July 1937 when we started the 24-hour guard that we still uh, do today. And for me, when I was there, I would usually get there probably about like four o'clock in the morning um, to check my uniform over again and make sure it was still good from the night before because you might have had dust or something on it. Steam it out so it looks good. Make sure your all your shoes and stuff. Uh, we call it watering off. So a little bit of water on top of the polish to really make the, the shine pop. Um, we do physical fitness in the morning, change over quarters. And then the first ceremonial guard gets posted at seven o'clock in the morning. And then we do the, the ceremonial guard change throughout the day, either till five or till seven, depending on the time of year. Uh, and then at night we go into our fatigues or our regular army uniform, which you see them in the camouflage. And then we guard it at night that way. One of those, one of the reasons is so at night um, when there's nobody else around, we have our freedom of movement. So we can, you know, really assess the whole situation, check things out, but okay. we also do our training at night. So nothing substitutes, you know, actually training where you work during the day <laughs> than training where you work at night. So we're there at night, we, you know, go over the guard change sequence. That's how a lot of new soldiers down there start getting into the sequence. We work on our heel clicks, all of our cadence together. So we'll do that at night. Uh, they stay there throughout the night. The guards changed every one to two hours, depending on any kind of circumstance or weather. And that's a good time for new soldiers to be practicing as well. So that's where they work on their rifle manual and the guard change, the sequence, everything outside. Um, and then we also do joint, you know, a full relief training at night. So we all train together so that, you know, that's our time to perfect what we need to perform out there during the day. Uh, and then when the new relief comes in after they've conducted PT, we'll switch reliefs, you know, at uh, seven o'clock in the morning the next day. So we're there for at least at least 26 hours, sometimes longer. And if you're in a leadership position, like I was the relief commander, I always made sure I tried to be the first one there and usually the last one to leave. Uh, make sure all my soldiers got home safely. Uh, if they were tired, make sure they slept there. 
um, before they went home. Just kind of depends on, on how the night goes, because sometimes you end up staying up all night working on your stuff. You might have to get a new uniform up, might have to, like your shoes might have gotten rained on that day. So they're sitting on the dryer and you have to take care of those. Now, when, when Jen mentioned that um, you would be on the program, I was fascinated with the fact that you were, are a woman. And so how many women are um, in the tomb guard? So there are five that have passed training. I'm the fourth. The fifth one was most recently Sergeant First Class Chelsea Porterfield. The first one was Sergeant Heather Lynn Johnson back in like 1994. But I was the first one in about 20 years when I went down there. So it kind of, you know, when the first one hit, it was a huge thing. And then the two and three that, you know, so it was one, two and three, relatively close. And then it was a while before I came along. And then obviously with media and everything, it kind of really started sparking interest and, you know, and then with women allowed in combat and this and that and the other thing, most people think it's only infantry allowed. There is infantry, medics, chemical, um, you know, adjutant general, there's uh, PAO, which is our like photographers, stuff like that, public affairs. So if you're assigned to the old guard in the army, it has to be army, then you're able to try out and go to the tomb. So if you're a cook, if you're a chemical specialist, anything like that, you can try out to come down to the, you know, at the tomb and be a tomb guard. It's not just infantry. And what is the, so you said there's an application process and then you have to do the tryouts and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about what all that entails that it's required? Like you said, anybody in the, who's been in the army can do that. Um, what's in, required then? Um, so for the old guard, you have to have a, a very, you know, clean, good record. Um, some people, it's their first duty station. If they're tall in the infantry, it, it's a very po good possibility. It's their first duty station because they try and keep equal heights. So if you're doing the, um, just the regular or not regular, but the, uh, the marching platoon or caskets, they all need to be similar in height and it's the face of the army. So you want to see this, you know, well taken care of tall army soldier looks good in uniform, acts properly, things like that. So that's one of those things that if they're young and in the army and tall, some of them, this is our first duty station. So they'll be part of the firing party, casket party. Wow. Um, they can go to caisson for the horses. But for me, applying, there, there's military police company. So I applied to get into the old guard going to the military police company. Now, the old guard, they say for 5'8 for females, 5'10 for males, and that's for ceremonial purposes. But if you kept that for everything, then you would not have a lot of military police, male <laughs> or female, because right. not everyone's tall, um, cooks or any of the support MOSs, mechanics. Um, but it's that guideline is more for the ceremonial purpose of it. So they all look the same out there. Their height's similar. It just looks clean across the board. Um, so I applied, I had to have letter of recommendation, submit like my PT card, just stuff like that. And they can call you and talk to you, but I had a relatively good, good, I would call it resume coming in. Um, and it was kind of, yes, we'll take you. Um, and uh, so I got to the military police company and then most of them knew my intentions coming in was to go down to the tomb. And so after a few months at the military police company, I had already talked to the sergeant of the guard or the assistant sergeant of the guard and put out there like, yes, this is what I want to do. And then once they had enough people or soldiers wanting to come down, they formed this TDY class and you go through, you know, 
a couple weeks of making sure you're trainable and that you understand and that you can start the, the basics of being a tomb guard, the knowledge. So you get your first seven pages of knowledge and you have to memorize it verbatim, you know, and that's what ends up becoming your presentation in the end. So a lot of the presentations or briefs that are given down at the tomb are those first seven pages of knowledge because it's the history of the tomb and all the and 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 the unknowns there on the plaza. Um, and once they kind of assess that you're trainable and that you're you know ready to put forth the effort, then you get assigned to a relief, usually based on height. So first is the tallest, second is kind of the in between, and the third is the shortest. So me being five five on a pretty good day um <laughs> i was on third relief so thankfully when i went down there there were some shorter soldiers so it didn't look too out of whack when i was down there because i do try and keep them all within the same height oh that, that, yeah i was going to ask that if there was different ones that they kept you guys scheduled to the same height. that's interesting yeah yep so this the third three reliefs first second and third tallest or shortest. I never would have made it then. I'm only 4'11", so <laughs> I am very short, but that's okay. Um, so uh, what, well, before we get into that, I was going to say, um, you guys have a scholarship program um, that I was reading about on the, the website. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and who it's for? And Yeah, sure. So we have uh, three $1,000 scholarships that we do every year. Um, and there's one, the Adam Dickmeyer Memorial Scholarship. He was a tomb guard. And then he, after his time, he went to 101st Airborne where he deployed and he was killed in action. So it's a uh, memorial scholarship for him and only current or former tomb guards can apply for that one. Then we have the Neil Cosby Scholarship and then also the Shuktas or Society Honor Guard Tomb and Soldier Freedom Scholarship. And those can be current, former tomb guards, family members, or open citizens uh, of the United States, but they have to have a tomb guard sponsor. So if you just want to apply for it, you don't know a tomb guard, you can reach out to myself and I can put you in touch with one, or sometimes you get in touch with them through other community presentations that they give. Because there's only so many of us, but we're spread out pretty far out that I can put you, know, you in touch with a, a tomb guard in your area to be your sponsor. But at some, some point, you have to have this relationship back to the tomb, whether you're a current or former tomb guard, maybe it was a family member, um, like your grandfather or your uncle, or if it's just one of your community members. And you have to, you know, submit your uh, the application for it. It includes usually letters of recommendation, your uh, transcripts, and then an essay. So it's either what the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier means to me or if you are a current or former tomb guard, it's how do I continue to legacy? How do I continue to tell the story of the unknowns and honor their service and sacrifice? So anybody out there listening, if you didn't know about that program and you qualify in there, make sure you check it out um, because I, I thought that was really special that you guys offer that um, as part of what you do. You can just go to our website, tombguard.org and you can click on the menu and it has all the, uh, all the information on there throughout our different scholarships. So the deadline every year is May 15th. So that just passed for us. Um, so I have a committee form now and I send them all the applications and they vote on who they think should do it. And I pile it all together and figure out who the winners uh, of the scholarships will be. So those should be announced for this last cycle pretty soon then. Yeah, I gave myself a deadline of June 19th. Um, so that it gives me a chance to get everything together, send it out if there's any conversation that needs to be had. And then and go from there because you're trying to, like I said, get 
several different people on the same schedule and getting everything together. So it's uh, plenty of time to read through and, and, and give their input. What are some other things that you would like people to know about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier that is not necessarily common knowledge? That it's not just about the changing of the guard. Uh, a lot of <laughs> this people, is true. Yeah, a lot of people go there to see that, oh. and they may not fully understand the story uh, and the service and sacrifice. There's four thousand seven hundred and twenty-three unknowns in Arlington National Cemetery alone, and at the time the World War One unknown was selected, you don't have all the massive transit systems that we have today. Families were given the option, if they were able to find and identify their loved ones, to have them repatriated back here in the U.S. or to go over there one time and see their loved one if they were able to be identified and actually interred in the cemetery. So when the World War I unknown came over, it was the way you see parades lying today does not even hold a candle to how it was when the World War I unknown was brought over and then placed in the Capitol Rotunda on November 10th for America to come through and pay their respects. It was mothers, fathers, daughters, uncles, nieces, nephews coming through because dad, brother, uncle Johnny went off to war, never came back, never heard from him again. So that was their chance to be like, this could be that soldier, this could be mine. And there was a full rotunda, it was a constant walkthrough. When on November 11th, 1921, when they went from the rotunda and you don't have the bridge you have today, the Memorial Bridge, they had to go down and around, but that was lined deep, you know, 10, 15 deep of people alongside the road as they came through with the horse, with the case on, with the World War I unknown on there. And it was actually broadcast over radio, which is one of the back then thinking about oh that's like normal now tv broadcast back then it was not right so being broadcast over the radio for america to sit there and to understand to go through that connection you still have it today but to imagine it on that scale in 1921 because even when the world war one unknown after it had been selected in solange champagne um out in france the French people lined the streets uh, as the World War I went from there to the Port in Louvre. They lined the streets along the railroad there at the port, at the reception of the port back in Washington, D.C. It's just incredible to think about how many people were there. So everyone right. comes to the tomb and they want to see the guard change because it is a beautiful, beautiful display of precision right. and honor and you know, duty, but they're there for that, those unknown soldiers on the plaza and all the rest of the ones that are all over the world. Um, and so that's, that's kind of one of those things that I always envision of they come out here, they want to see the, the guard change. They want to see the tomb guards and that's great. It's a wonderful draw and it gets people to the unknowns, but I want them to really understand what that tomb is there for, and who it's for. It's for all of them. Cause when we're right. out there, and we're in the middle of the night, you know, you start thinking to yourself, like, I wonder if your family's ever been here to mourn the loss. And it happens to be their service member, but they just don't know it. Mm. it gave me chill. Oh, my goodness. Um, so speaking of that, going right into that, how has guard duty for you 
changed your life being an actual guard and doing the the duty um i will be will probably i don't i'm a very very humble person so when i went down to the tomb one of the first things that i told him is i want to be treated just like anybody else is down here i understand i'm a female i don't care um treat me the same no better no worse i'm i'm down here to honor your nose this is what i want to do and one of my personal connections is my husband's great grandfather he actually uh, passed away at the baton death march and so they mm -hmm. went through a whole you know way back when in the 40s they went you know the the repatriation of that so he could have been one of those unknown at any given time and I have a huge military background in my family, both my grandfathers, my dad, brother, sister, husband, cousins, all served. Um, so for me, there was really no, no higher honor in my life that I think I could ever achieve than to guard the unknowns. To understand their sacrifice, I don't think could ever be done because they gave up their identity. But to be able to relate to their sacrifice and the amount of time and effort and energy that we as tomb guards put into our uniform that we put into the guard change sequence that we put into sharing the story of the unknowns is we try and get as perfect as we can but no one is perfect but it's just to honor them and their service and sacrifice and everything that they gave we can give a little bit because they gave everything ruth could you give us um your most memorable I want to say event memory while on duty as a guard. Uh, the one that probably most recently really started to not affect me, but made me think a little bit more. Um, there would be little girls out there and they're like, mommy, that's a girl or daddy, that's a girl uh, or, a, you know, a female tomb guard. And that, and I think about that, uh, it was probably just a couple of weeks ago. I really started to think, um, back in when Heather was first there, I would have been probably about the same age. And you're like, man, you're like, you know, I can really do anything that I wanna do. And that's a, I, I won't say that I felt that in the time that it happened, um, but as I sit back and reflect a little bit more and start understanding and talking with more people, uh, that's probably one of the, the biggest things that I remember is seeing young, young girls out there and me being a role model. Mm -hmm. I'm not one to shout out to the streets and say, hey, I'm your role model. Right. <laughs> um, but to really think about that, I, I could have had an impact on someone just by just by doing my duty. Um, and, and the other ones are the early mornings or the late nights when you're out there by yourself and you just you really have that chance to reflect on what you're doing out there and why you're doing it. You might you might be having a hard time, but, uh, you know, that's little in comparison to to what some folks gave it must be beautiful yeah i can't imagine yourself. you know there's those days where you get the horrible weather and the <laughs> everything else going on and yeah. you guys stand out there and and deal with it yeah, my first winter there uh, 15 into 16 the snow apocalypse came through and we got a couple feet of snow overnight and i was actually there for three days straight because we couldn't oh, get out um but that was actually one of the coolest times you're out there and all you hear is the snow yeah. falling Wow. Um, and that's a, that's a really special moment. Uh, yeah. Something I definitely will never forget because it, you know, it was closed to the public. So it was just us 
uh, and enduring the storm out there is pretty neat. How cool. Well, thank you so much for even wanting to do that job and for, for all the tomb guards who want to be there and go through the training and go through the bad weather. And I'm hoping, although I'm sure it's happened, you know, even people visiting and maybe saying horrible things while you're standing there. um, I'm hoping they haven't done that. I know it happens on occasion in other places, um, but it, it just means so much to, I know for me, like you, I come from a large military background. My dad served in the Navy. My husband's father was in the um, army. Um, he actually lost both legs and part of an arm in Vietnam. Um, and my grandma or my grandfather, and I have aunts and uncles and tons of cousins that have served and are serving. So um, it, you know, me personally, I did not serve, but I am grateful for everybody who has. And I'm grateful that there's women and men like you who want to stand out there and, and honor the women that gave everything. Like you said, they gave everything, including their identities. We don't know who they are anymore, but they, for what they believed in for this country, we are super grateful for everything that you do for them. So thank you very much. I guess one of our last questions for you um, is what advice do you have for young people in America today, especially anyone who may be considering a military career going forward, but even just in general? Yeah, uh, I, I don't encourage or discourage the military. It's all a personal choice. Um, coming from a military family, my dad was you know, very adamant about going to college. And, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. He didn't have to force me to go to college, and not go in the military. He just happened to have three kids who want to join the military. Um, but my dad uh, was out before he had any of his kids. It was just something that we all wanted to do. So it's kind of like a call to service. If you feel like you want to do it, great. But it also gives you a great leg up in life. If you're struggling and you don't know if you can afford college, uh, the military, any branch, uh, is a great way to, to go about doing it, uh, to help you get through college if that's something that you're trying to do. Um, I will tell you, military service members are wonderful mentors. And if you're looking for one, whether you want to join the military or not, they are wonderful mentors. They have gone through so many different things in life, and none of our experiences are the same, but we're all bound by our experiences together. Um, with the with the guys I deployed with, I trust them with my life, and they're they'll always be a part of my life, whether I go a day without talking to them or years without talking to them. We're all bound by those um, similar experiences, and same thing with the tomb guards. It it's just you can turn a corner, or you can say hello and find out someone served in the military, and you can become instant friends uh, just by the shared bonding of that, um, and just. Just in general, besides finding the mentor, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, a lot, you know, think before you act. If you've got, if you got something going on and you're getting ready to, to do something, always have a plan of what you want to do. Think about what you're doing and why you're going to do it. Don't just jump full tilt and go in for it, you know, kind of come up with a plan. And my plan was always going to college. I knew I wanted to serve. Um, and so I served after college and I still continue to serve. I, I did my time active duty. I knew I did not want to do the full 20 active duty, but I wanted to continue my service. So now I'm, uh, I actually commissioned and now I uh, serve as a platoon leader in the army reserve. Very cool. Um, so I still continue my service. My husband is still serving uh, actively as well in the Navy. Um, and another one for me that I found uh, has served me well is being humble. I'm naturally just a very, 
I'll, I'll probably be the last person to tell you I was ever a tomb guard. Uh, if I'm around anybody, it's always my friends or family or coworkers saying something because that's me and that's part of my life and I'm extremely proud of it, but I don't, I kind of enjoy the separation. So when I was there, I was Staff Sergeant Hanks. Now I'm Lieutenant Robinson. And not only did I have a name change, I had a rank change. Right. And so it's nice to kind of have the deviation. But when someone's intrigued and they want to know about it, I will tell them anything and everything they want to know about it because I absolutely love sharing the story. I'll share my struggles with it. I have no problems with that. When I was in training, uh, one of my best friends became part of the 22 a day, and my mom was also diagnosed with cancer all while I was in training. And, um, and she ended up passing away uh, two months before my wedding. So going through all that and those personal experiences, you know, it's just being a human being. Be nice to somebody. Like, you never know what they're going through. So when I was going through those experiences, when I was down there, uh, my tomb guard brothers, they, they were there for me. They would call me, text me, make sure I was okay. But, you know, it's, uh, and, and they're still there for me to this day. I actually just talked to two of them yesterday. <laughs> uh, and with our centennial coming up, I can't think of a better way to spend time. We're actually going to France in October. It's almost oh, kind of like a pilgrimage. So we're yeah. starting out in Paris and then we're going to go to the four major battlefields uh, where the unknown candidates from World War I came from and where the selection was made and out to the Port of the Wave, where it was put aboard the USS Olympia and brought across the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean to D.C. Uh, and then we'll end up kind of culminating back in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe where their unknown soldier is and have our own little reception and ceremony there. Oh, amazing. That sounds yeah, so amazing. I'm so glad you get to do that. And then uh, yes. November is our uh, reunion. So there's, there's going to be a, quite a few number of tomb guards there. And it's cool because we've all had the same experience, but we've all had different experiences. Uh, and that's when we get to just hang out and talk about it. And it's, yeah, you know, just talk about all our different experiences, what we've done since then, how it's affected us. And that's kind of how you learn about everybody else who was down there, how it was in the eighties versus how it is now versus how it was back in the fifties and even, and even, you know, before then. So we've, um, have a pretty wide range of folks that'll be there. Wow. Just the that stories. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, Ruth, thank you so much. We are honored. so yes. honored that you wanted to come on and, and chat with us and tell us your stories and tell us the story. Um, and I'm hoping that um, more of our listeners will hear that. And for anybody who didn't know the story behind the tomb, you know, now we've at least been able to tell that to them. Um, and that's, like you said, that's the important part of the whole thing is sharing the actual story of the whole reason we have those tombs. So thank you very much. And like I said, our, our website, tombguard.org, if you want a community presentation, you can go on there and, and request a presentation. So we are not shy about giving them. We'll get them scheduled the best we can, but it's part of our outreach program and spreading the word of the unknowns. Wonderful. Um, and for our listeners, we will have that information. It will be listed um, in the show notes for today's episode on our website, which is the ordinary extraordinary cemetery.com. So you can just go to today's episode in the show notes and we'll have a link to their website. Um, and then like um, Ruth said, you'll be able to look up 
um, the scholarship information, information on presentations, the history of the, the tomb, all the stuff, it's all on there. So make sure you check that out. Um, and you'll also be able to find the links to that website on our social media pages. So Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery and on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. And we will also have some uh, photos of the tomb itself for people to check out. Thank you very much. We hope all of our American listeners have a safe Memorial Day weekend and that you will take the time to honor those who are the reason for this extra day off. We thought we would end this episode just a tad differently by sharing the poem, At the Tomb of the Unknown, written by Kathleen Rem. Kathleen served in the United States Army from 1971 to 1980. Her inscription for the poem came from, quote, in 1972, I was stationed at Vent Hills Farm in Virginia. One weekend, some of us enlisted women drove to Washington, D.C. to see the sites. We were at Arlington National Cemetery in time to see the changing of the guard of the tomb and the unknown soldiers. The image of the white glove, silent inspection has stayed with me all these years. At the Tombs of the Unknown by Kathleen Rim. These words are carved in the marble stone. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Not far from Arlington Cemetery Gate, by your fellow soldiers you lie in state. From a century of wars you came to rest in this place, guarded by your fellow soldiers in stately grace. By your sacrifices a later generation would yell, hell no, we won't go, but you went into the trenches and muck of Verdun onto Omaha Beach, landing at Anzio into the bitter winter of the frozen chosen, crawling through the jungles of the Tet Offensive, Danny boy, the pipes are calling, but you did not come back, yea, back. But there was no hurrah. Your tomb of the unknowns is sacred ground where our nation's honor can still be found. <laughs>